You would please turn to the book of Acts. I'll be reading Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20, verses 13 through 21. Acts 20, 13 through 21. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and instructive word to our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, may we, by your grace and the work of the Spirit, consciously sit in your presence and hear the word of your Apostle Paul. And as we sung this morning, to hear it with joy, to hear the beauty of it, because you're our righteousness. Your cross and our redemption is our anchor. You'll never let us go. We thank you for your work in the midst of us this morning. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. So as we look this morning at the beginning of Paul's admonition and address to the church leaders, to the pastors, the shepherds, the elders, the, the, the overseers that he calls to himself, do not be deceived. Oh, it doesn't apply to me. Really is how it works this way. Every believer, no matter their calling, are called to the vast majority of what we're going to see. Other than necessarily public preaching or teaching. What we're going to see that Paul says about his life as a model is every Christian. That's why by definition, those who would be leaders in the church must be walking that way. And so as we go through what Paul says here, it's you, 
And certainly it's me, certainly it's Bob and the pastors and elders around the world today. And so as we go through this then, this short little passage raises a few questions for every one of us who call ourselves Christians. And that is, first, are you just living for yourself? Or or are you submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit, developing in you a servant's, a slave's mentality to the Lord Jesus? Secondly, are you living a double life? Or, Or do you live a life of transparency? In other words, a life of What you see is what you get. What you see at church is what you get in my life. And what you get is a sinner. You get a sinner who is devoted to serve Christ by serving others. Thirdly, are you growing in humility? Are you growing in love, care, tears for others? Are you remaining faithful to Christ in the midst of trials? Those are the questions that ring strongly to us in this passage. And so as we look to Paul, his speech about himself, let's see this this morning. Now, Remember the context? Paul has just gone through the the region of Asia and then Macedonia and Greece into all the different cities and the churches in order to preach to the choir because he loved to do it and he knew how important it was to encourage them and he's raising uh, and collecting the offerings that have been raised in order to take them to the Jerusalem church. But now Luke lets us know Paul, on purpose, did not port at Ephesus because he didn't want to get stuck. He wanted to make it to Jerusalem, so he goes to Miletus, 30 miles from Ephesus, and he sends for the church leaders, the elders of the church in Ephesus, to come to him. They come to him 30 miles down the road so Paul can pour into them one last time. Now, we all know, I think, that In Paul's writings of 1 Timothy and Titus, he lays out the qualifications of elders. Here this morning in this speech, what he does is he reflects on his own life and his own conduct in ministry among the church there in Ephesus over a period of three years. And thus what we get out of that are the marks of a godly church leader. But again, most of these qualities are what every Christian is called to pursue. Here's Paul. Give me the elders. And he gives them this last speech, knowing he's never going to see them again in his life. And his great hope is that the legacy of his faithful gospel preaching and gospel living will continue through the fruitful ministries of these church leaders whom he has already been equipping 
over the last three years. So if you're there in verse 18, chapter 20, notice that Paul appeals to how he himself lived, how he conducted his life, not just in his eight-hour-a-day job as a teaching pastor, as a leader, but in every aspect of his day and his week for three years. Verse 18. You guys, you yourselves, you know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Now just behind that are voices of Paul's enemies within the church, bad-mouthing him. It is amazing how fickle we human beings are to gossip, to slander. Yeah, you know what? I think you're probably right about Paul. Paul, you know how I lived among you. Okay, well, how did you live, Paul? Look at the text. Look at the text. He tells us what he means. Serving the Lord. That's how I lived, he said. Paul saw himself as owned by a master, as a slave, and thus duty-bound to obey him. He lived as a servant of Jesus among them. What does that look like, Paul? Look at the text. He goes on to show you what it looks like. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So there it is in a nutshell. Godly church leaders are called to have a servant's heart while living a life of transparency. And this service to the Lord is defined by its humility, its tears. It's, in other words, caring about others and the gospel with tears and by its steadfastness or its perseverance in hard, hard times, in trials. And then he shows us that that, that service of living in humility and tears and perseverance he says, for you elders then, here's the duty that flows out of that as you do it. Verse 20 and 21. You know the whole time how I, Paul, did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's our text. Paul's clear, but let's slow down now and go back through it and look at the pieces of what he is reflecting here of godly biblical leadership of shepherds elders 
and thus the way all Christians are to walk in these traits. First is this. Eldership, pastors, shepherds, leaders, and churches, it is first a servant's attitude. You know how I lived among you, serving the Lord. Paul claims, and he assumes, that a godly church leader is like an obedient, faithful slave to his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. The verb he uses here, serving, is from the same root, the same basic root of the noun, doulos, which means slave, which Paul constantly used to define himself. Like in Romans 1.1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Or Galatians 1.10, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Philippians 1.1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Titus 1.1, Paul, a slave of of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of truth which accords with godliness. That's how Paul viewed his life and his ministry as a slave of Jesus. He viewed it as servanthood. Ownership, I'm saying this stuff on purpose. Ownership by another. Ownership by every one of us who is a Christian. Ownership by our benevolent, loving master. That is the reality of all Christians. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6. Christian, You are not your own. You're not free like that. You don't own yourself any longer. You are not your own because you were bought on the block. You were bought with a price. As we sung about this morning, Jesus' blood. You were bought with a price. Therefore, the conclusion, glorify God in your body. That's Paul. And so one crucial thing this means, particularly in this context, is that pastors, church leaders, they primarily serve the Lord. Only secondarily, they do, but secondarily serve Christ. Paul was a servant to the Ephesian church. He was a servant to these men, to these elders, but only because he was first a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. So so if the Apostle Paul were under a local church government today that dictated to him, now Paul 
look, what we want from you, we hired you here, so what we want is you to not be so clear about the gospel on a, a few aspects of it. Like, don't be so upfront and clear about God's holy wrath against sinners. When you talk about the cross, yes, Jesus loves us, but don't be clear about God's anger and wrath that he poured out upon Jesus. That's kind of off-putting in our day and our age. And for goodness sake, Paul, don't speak on cultural and social issues like the killing of babies in the womb in this country. Or don't speak about the ubiquity of same-sex marriage being jammed down the throats of the children from K through 12 and all the way through and in everything it is permeating. If they said that to Paul, he would find it his duty to obey Christ rather than that church board. He would refuse to be a man pleaser in order to keep his job. Servants of the Lord, they live and they act and they preach in the reality that they will ultimately answer to God someday for how they fulfilled their office of shepherd, or pastor, elder, overseer. When Paul himself compared his ministry as a gospel preacher over against the ministries of other preachers, which he did. In other words, those whom he accused of twisting the gospel, he said this. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. And, and do you remember what he wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2? He writes in this letter, he says, Just as we, Paul, in, in, in his preaching missionary team, just as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel. So there's a message, there's truth that you're to proclaim from the king. He entrusted that to us. So just as he entrusted that to us, listen to what he says, so we speak. It. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And so the conviction of living to please God rather than people, that's what allowed Paul, that's what allows shepherds to preach difficult truths when necessary. He is a slave of Christ. And he's saying by implications, that's your job. Serve Christ, and thus you serve others, elders, and Christians. Secondly, we see here that 
Christ-centered leadership is marked by transparency. Now, this is a tricky word. There's probably 20 different definitions you just went through your head. I just said one word, and most of them are wrong. I mean, wrong in the sense of not what I mean. And I don't want to be a four-hour sermon, so we'll just see what happens here. But he says this. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And then later he says, night and day I was in your homes, in your houses, constantly speaking with you. You know how I live. So no matter what anybody else now is coming to tell you guys, you don't have an excuse really. Because they had a clear view of who Paul really was and how he lived his life. He did not play games. He did not put on fronts. It wasn't like, here's Minister Dr. Paul now, and then he goes home or to the restaurant, and now he's a totally different person in private. Paul was a fellow Christian being saved by grace. And yes, he had a burdensome call as an apostle, direct call from the resurrected Lord Jesus. But there wasn't Paul, the man, at the dinner table. And then Paul, the public preacher and shepherd and in the home and leading, who's just a whole different person. He was just Paul. Transparency means That what you are in private is the same you are in public. Transparency, in other words, Christian transparency, doesn't mean live according to the flesh because you're real. It's not what it means. And when, as a Christian, you live in a way denying what comes natural to you called sin and you want to fight it, it doesn't mean you're fake. It means you're a Christian. But it means that you're not putting on airs or you don't really care because they sin and you sin, but we're going to move on now. But I don't need to put on my best foot for you who are in my life. Let's fight the fight of faith. That's different than those types of persons who talk a particular way at church. And the rest of the week, they live something totally different. And they would be ashamed if others found out about it. Oh, their family knows. But the others in the church. I lived among you, he says. And then thirdly, notice the three character issues that Paul puts forward about himself as a Servant leader. First, humility. Right there, verse 19. You know how I lived. It's in front of you. Serving the Lord with all humility. Okay. Did Paul know in his Christian life, did he know personally the sin of pride in him? Yes, absolutely, he did. He he even admits that the Lord Jesus needed to help him, 
not continue to give in to that sin and be puffed up, pridefully arrogant. Jesus needed to help him by allowing a messenger of Satan to continually humiliate him that would point out, Paul, you, you want to know who you are without me? Utterly weak. And so Paul would boast. If I boasted anything, it's only in my weakness because in that context then I boast in the Lord. Second question. Is it sin to say I'm humble? Good. Alex says no. Because it's right there in the Bible and Paul did it. And in this context, she's interpreting him as not sinning by saying it. But not only that, you can add to that. Jesus called himself humble. If it was sin to say you're humble, that he would be a sinner. Well, that's not good enough because Jesus never did sin and he's perfect, okay, and he is the God man. Okay, Moses, there's a sinner for you who was disciplined for his sin by the Lord, called himself essentially the most humble man on earth. So therefore, the conclusion is, it is possible to know, yes, I walked in humility here, or I'm humble there without being pridefully sinful. So, so what's Paul driving at here when he said, you know how I live serving the Lord in all humility. What does he mean by humility here? This is the guy who throughout his ministry was constantly in the face of false teachers. Evidently, you could be humble in doing that. Evidently, you can go to Jerusalem with the other co-apostles and you could say, put up or shut up. Speak up. Jerusalem leaders for the Gentile church's sake, does Titus need to be circumcised or not? You can say that and actually be coming from a humility. What is he driving at? What does this mean? I think here, here it is. In, I think at core, what Paul means by serving the Lord in humility is this. Humility at its core is this conscious awareness of being utterly dependent upon the Lord. That's what I think he means. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 3, listen to what he says. And, and when he says this, I, I think what he's doing is driving at, explaining humility as a preacher, as an apostle, as a shepherd. When he says this, not that we, in the context, is preaching, teaching, leading. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. That's what Paul's Driving at in this context. Those living in humility know that they are sinners. 
They know that the sin of arrogance and pride is constantly crouching at their doorstep. People who live in humility do sin with the sin of pride. But by God's grace, then they see it again and they slam the door in that lion's face and ask the Lord's forgiveness. And they continue to walk and continue to walk. We see humility when Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure, meaning the gospel message that I am a slave. And my master said, preach it. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Brokenness. Still sinful. We're undone. All kinds of trials and weaknesses. And we have the beauty of the gospel that saves souls for eternity in jars of clay. And he says why. Here's God's purpose. In order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and never to Paul or any preacher or any evangelist or any missionary or any Christian. And therefore, Paul, or any of us, walking in humility, we, humility, does not look down its nose. That's an old saying. I'm trying to realize that Bob and I, the older we get, you younger people don't even know these sayings. That is a saying that is a self-righteous pridefulness that looks down its nose at others as if (laughs) I'm better than you. I never understood Christians that could say when another brother or sister falls, I can't believe that. How how could they do that? Do you understand yourself in the gospel? But for the grace of God, there go you. The humble person, though, Instead, is constantly amazed at God's saving and sustaining grace in his or her life. There is a huge difference, in other words, between confidence in Christ and confidence in oneself. So Paul says, serving the Lord with all humility. And the second character issue he brings up is godly servanthood that loves. It's right there. I'm, well, the word love isn't. But, but he's saying, I have a real concern and compassion for others. That's what he's saying. That's what he means by tears. Verse 19, serving the Lord with tears. Later in verse 31, he says, Be alert, guys, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. I didn't cease to advise you and to counsel you and to press you on to duty to Christ with tears. And then there are more tears, right? 
You know your Bible. At the end of Paul's speech, they know we're not going to see each other anymore, all these elders and Paul, and they hug each other, and there's tears flowing. Why? Because what Paul's driving at, this is relationship. It's very human, not like, a, not like a computer that spits out doctrine. It's real. They loved him. And he loved them. It is one thing for Paul or for any preacher to have a bunch of knowledge, which is important, and Paul certainly had it. It is another thing for the people that you teach and that you lead to know that you care about them. You love them. So Paul writes to the Corinthian church when they're doing some bad things, unchristian things, they need to repent. And he writes to them, I wrote to you out of much affliction. He wasn't indifferent in this relationship with them. I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not in order to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And those of us who parent our children at different ages, we know what that means. Because you love them you get in their face because you love them. You discipline them. You withhold from them because you care about the soul that you are developing. And then the third character issue Paul brings up is steadfastness. Serving the Lord with trials. With trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews the Ephesian elders were three years for Paul. In other words, he's just reminding what they know. They know everything Paul went through. They know the really rough times. Luke even just gave us just one instance where Paul almost gets killed in that riot in Ephesus, incited by the Gentiles. And now Paul brings up other stuff and plots to kill him and undo his ministry by the unbelieving Jews in town. This, was, this is how... He lived, and we know that in Asia, Paul himself wrote about it, and these elders witnessed that Paul had such struggles that he even despaired of life at times. They watched him, though, in the midst of it. Hold. Faithful. To the gospel. To fully preach it instead of to withhold things that would cause his life to be easier. He didn't cave to fear, but he trusted in God, and he didn't grow bitter in the trials, but ultimately, ultimately, not easily, ultimately, he saw the hand of God in the trials, working in him a deeper sense of don't rely on yourself, Paul, but rely on God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1. And so, up to this point in our passage, what we have seen is that the servant attitude of being a slave of Christ 
is to walk in transparency and humility and loving others with tears and steadfastness in trials. And then Paul looks at the elders and puts himself forward as that model and essentially is saying, by example, here's your duty now. You know how I lived. That is, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take those two verses and look at it closely in its pieces. First, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Always read your Bible or anything that's important enough to read. A letter from someone or whatever. Why did he say it that way? Why did he put it that way? You know I did not shrink back. Literally what he says in the original is, you know, I kept back from you nothing that was profitable. You know that. So think about it. This clearly implies, though Paul felt it, Though there is the temptation to not teach or say something clearly. Paul says, I know it, but I didn't give in to that. In other words, Paul, he knows very well that numbers of things that are part of the gospel, truths in the Christian life, that are very profitable. They're also very difficult for people at times to receive. And therefore he knows as a human being who's broken and sinful and, and can be tempted, he knows that therefore they can be difficult to teach if he had been seeking to please people. If he cared more about not offending people but instead wanting them to be happy with him and to affirm him, well then, Paul would leave a number of things out of the gospel that Jesus gave to him. He would. You should know church history as much as you can. That has been and was promised to be in the New Testament always a problem within the physical church, the visible church in the world. And it is today. The, the problem here is not preachers and pastors like me that would preach heretical things. Those are easy to identify. You just out, you got the doctrine of God so wrong and the doctrine of the atonement so wrong. We're not talking about, he didn't say, I never preached heresy to you. It's not what he said. And this points to a problem 
that we could go throughout the world and say, well, yes, the pastor said nothing heretical or wrong, and what he said is, okay, that's biblical, that's true, but week after week and month after month and year after year, the problem is what they don't say that is clear about God and the gospel and the Christian life. And it's always a temptation for any sinner whom God calls to pastor. What gave Paul boldness? Here is my opinion. You take it, think about it. I think why Paul was able to say that now, I stood faithful and I didn't withhold anything, is this. Paul knew that God knew what he was doing when he chose to reveal those truths that he chose to reveal through Christ and the Scriptures. And therefore, Paul's conclusion is they are profitable for God's people. They are important and they should not be hidden. And so Paul plainly taught what God wanted him to teach. That was his ministry. Now, anything I just said in the last eight minutes, this is what, if you read your New Testament carefully, it's not like, look at the New Testament church, and then you talk about 20th century or 21st century Christianity in America. No, 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 no. Everything I just said was a problem already during Paul's ministry. That's God's sovereign providence for us too. For one is, listen to what Paul says to these elders a little bit later down in his speech. Verse 26. He says, I testify to you then this day. This is a strong statement. That I am innocent of the blood of of you all. Why are you innocent? Because I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's why I, Paul, have clean hands in my ministry. With you. Listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians 4 2. But we, context here again, Paul, the preaching ministry, teaching ministry within the church, we have renounced disgraceful. Okay, again, why would he say that? I'll tell you why he says it. Because Paul was accusing many preachers of doing disgraceful, underhanded things in the ministry. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. Why is he saying? Because he is accusing others of 
doing within the church just that. But then he says this, but what do we do? But instead, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We just give them all that God gave us to give them. So what kinds of things is Paul talking about? Well, let me just take, go out on a limb and say, I think, okay, just briefly. Well, one thing in way to get at that is, I think, isn't it? Look what he wrote to these elders and to the church at Ephesus a few years later. I mean, when they read Paul's letter of, or to the Ephesians, they and the whole church didn't say, wow, I never knew this about the gospel. Never knew that about the Christian life. These are the things for three years he was given in the whole counsel of God. So if you just turn to the book of Ephesus, some things we know that Paul did not hold back from them are the doctrine of election. The doctrine of, per, of, of predestination. The doctrine of God's wrath against all sinners. He did not hold back the reality that every one of us sinners by our sin, it is so deep and it is so thorough that none of us without the grace of God can come to faith in Christ. He did not hold back when he writes to the Ephesians, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He did it according to the purpose of His will. And you, you Ephesian Christians, before you came to Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once lived your life. In fact, all of us, I, Paul included, we all lived in the passions of our flesh. He did not shrink back. And of the mind. And we were by, by our very nature children of God's holy, perfect anger. In wrath. All of us, He did not hold back. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God came along and made us alive. Oh, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that grace and that faith you have was not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And God had a purpose in doing things that way. So that no human being will boast. And, and Paul, what he didn't hold back, this is clearly he did not hold this back in his preaching, teaching ministry, was the reality and the truth that Jews and Gentiles are all saved through faith in Christ alone, apart from any Jewish law-keeping. He didn't hold it back. And that teaching 
there earned Paul a lot of enemies within the church, much less outside of it. But he did not shrink from teaching these truths openly. Why? He tells us why. Because they're very important and helpful to Christians. That's why. They are, his word, profitable. And so Paul taught them. And so should we. And now briefly, Paul lets us know that this faithful, this faithful biblical teaching takes place both in formal settings and informal settings. Verse 20, and how I was teaching you in public and from house to house. We know he taught publicly, daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And he's also in homes, in small churches, meetings, in houses. This shows how much in those informal meetings over meals, over talk, it shows how much Paul loved to talk about the things of God and to teach and to unfold Scripture in formal or informal settings. And then notice the seriousness that Paul had when, in other words, here's the context, dealing with gospel truth, eternal truths. Verse 21. You know how I was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Could you just pause. That word testifying isn't just, yeah, there's the truth, I say it. No, 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 no. This means, that word means solemnly, seriously. His demeanor about such issues was urgent. It was sober. Those issues, in, while dealing with them, were not light-hearted. Like sometimes, if you, you're, you're listening to a preacher, you're wondering, is he a stand-up comic? Or is that a proclaimer of eternal salvation from God's just wrath speaking right then? Humor is a wonderful, human, God-given trait. Absolutely. But it should not be used, hear me carefully, it should not be used in the moment of heavy, eternal, gospel issues. There is a gravity to gospel preaching and gospel teaching. Then finally, the core content of a faithful Jesus preacher, the content Paul lays out clearly right here, at least foundationally, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God 
and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Obviously, the gospel is clear that Paul preaches about the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the second coming someday of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then it follows up with the way that you, a sinner, can be made right with God is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Repentance and faith aren't two ways to God. They are the flip side of the one and same coin. They are the different views of the one requirement for salvation in Jesus. Repentance means turning from our sinful lifestyles, patterns that God says, don't do, laid out in Scripture. Quit walking that way. And it turns toward God. Repentance at its core is that heartfelt cry that Jesus illustrated for us. Oh, God, I see my sin. And I see Your offer of free unmerited grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I desire to turn away from that in delight and want more of you and to follow my Savior. That's repentance. That's a lifelong thing for Christians. But that's repentance. Or to say that in another way, that's faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith believes and it loves the provision of Christ. Faith doesn't look to its own righteousness. Faith looks to Jesus' perfect righteousness. And it looks to His substitutionary death. As we sung this morning, it's why it's our anchor, the Gospel. In your sin this week as you pray and repent, I tell you with the authority of Scripture again, Christian, Jesus, loves you. It looks only again and again to His righteousness. On Him I stand before God forgiven, clean, justified. We'll continue. God willing, in the weeks to come with Paul's speech to these elders. But what we have seen this morning, it is Paul's standard for church leaders, for elders, pastors, shepherds. But all Christians, every single one of us believers, is called to grow in servitude in transparency, in humility, and in sound doctrine. In other words, I ask again, are you just living for yourself? 
or are you growing in a servant's mentality? Do you live a double life? Or, or are you transparent? In other words, what I mean is, what you see is what you get, and what you get is a broken sinner. This is Christian transparency. Repenting. Pursuing the Lord. Are you growing in humility? In tearful love for others? Are you persevering? And not growing bitter, but persevering in trials. In other words, let me just sum it this way. Here's the question. Is Christ your treasure? Is that the activity of your life? Easily defined the way Paul defined it. By repentance and faith. And so, as we who believe say yes, yes, Lord, work in me, we're going to close singing the beauty of these wonderful words. Hear it and feel it, dear Christian. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Hear this. For thee, all the follies of sin. I resign, my gracious Redeemer, my Savior Thou art. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now. Let's pray. Father, You have not given to us a snake, but of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. You did not withhold your Son, but you sent Him and you delivered Him up on the bloody cross as our substitute. Where He bore, where you, Lord Jesus, bore our sin. We love you. Amen.